Hello everyone, welcome back to Everreal Talks and I'm Jessica Side. And I'm Matt Side. And today we are continuing our celebration of Black History Month. Last week we spoke about a gentleman, Mr. Barrow, who um, moved here from the Midwest and started a family. And interestingly enough, uh, his family is uh, the next person I'm going to talk about. So this is his granddaughter and her name was uh, Eleanor Barrow Chase, because of course she married. Um, and so I'm going to read this about her because I think this is pretty wonderful. Uh, born at the end of December, 1918 in Spokane, Eleanor Barrow Chase, Barrow, I should say Barrow, Barrow Chase was the third generation of her family to live in the growing city of Spokane. She attended Lewis and Clark High School and Washington State College. She graduated magna cum laude from Whitworth College in 1941 with a bachelor's degree in music. A gifted operatic vocalist, she shifted gears when she married James E. Chase. And some of you might recognize that name because we're going to talk about him next week. <laughs> um, uh, spurred with a newfound desire to work now that their children were in school. Joined the State Department of Public Assistance Office in Spokane and worked as a social worker for nearly two decades. Chase also garnered praise from local judges when she worked as a juvenile court officer for nine years. Chase was appointed the first woman of color to the board of trustees for both Whitworth College, her alma mater, and Eastern Washington University in the 1970s. Hmm. Her husband, James, would also go on to break the mold, becoming Spokane's first black city council member and the first mayor, uh, black mayor in 1975 and 1981, respectively. That was her husband, right? That's said. correct. Yes. Chase, uh, now talking about Eleanor, Chase was active in her community. She and her husband were both members of the local NWA. NWACP chapter with James acting as president for 17 years. Uh, Chase served in the ethics committee for Deaconess Medical Center as well as many, excuse me, as well as held many service projects and committees for the community at large. Her work was invaluable to the city of Spokane and the proportionally small black community. Her name and legacy are memorialized today at the Eleanor Chase House, which acts as a women's facility for the State Department of Corrections. Do you ever read about people like this and just wonder at how they can operate at such a high level for so long? You know like, what? I just like I think of both of these individuals and we're yeah. going to talk about her husband next week, mm -hmm. but I sometimes think how I don't know. I, know. I marvel, really. No, actually, you know what I think it is? As you get older, because when you're younger, I remember being a teenager and looking at people in the Olympics and going, well, obviously, they're so much older than me. And then becoming the same age as the Olympians and then being so much older than the Olympians. I feel the same way with people that make great contributions to the world. As I get older, I go, wait, they're 36? <laughs> That's like a decade younger than me. That that surprises me, and I'm I'm always amazed by people that make such a big no, impact think of in like their world. On this ethics board, and was part of this board here. I mean, I can barely stand one or two boards, and I'm just burned. Like I'm candles at both, burning candle at both ends. Yeah, with yeah. That, and I just think, wow. Yeah, it is amazing. Wow. Some people are just freaking amazing. 
Excuse oh. my language. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for sharing, Jessica. All right, Matt. Speaking of involvement on committees and boards, yes. I think that's a good transition into some legislative updates. We don't do this ever. I think this is one of the first times we've ever done that. Uh, but I am on the Washington Realtors Legislative Steering Committee. And so our uh, wonderful governor government affairs team is all this time of year when the legislature is in session. We're tracking hundreds, and I'm not even kidding, over 200 bills that impact housing. Not just sure. total bills, but right. bills that impact housing. Jeez, that's a lot. Many of them, as we've moved into this phase of um, session, have kind of died and never gotten out of committee. But now yeah. there are bills that are out of committee that are now into different levels. There's one that some of our listeners might be interested in. It's House Bill, or HB 1084. You can Google that. Make sure you say Washington State House Bill or you'll maybe get a wrong one. Yeah. Um, And it is uh, basically a decarbonizing of homes and buildings. So it is a climate, it is a bill that would impact um, carbon emissions and Mm -hmm. climate in the state of Washington. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I wrote down a quote from, I don't know, page 26 of the bill, like deep into the bill. Uh, and it says to advance the hi- the use of high efficiency electric equipment for space and water heating, and basically the summary of this bill is to, in essence, not just with new construction, but it would be for new construction, require that all space and water heating uh, appliances be high efficiency electric, and even existing homes for a, in a certain period of time, decommissioning gas furnaces and gas water heaters and move everything to high efficiency and electric. The one that's really hard no, for me. No, you're it's you're wrong. Gas stoves? No, it's no, it's it doesn't space, have gas stoves? space and uh, water heating. The thing is is that this is a tough one because I think that we all um, you know, when the rubber meets the road sometimes it's really hard for us to go, well, is this a good choice for our future, for our kids, for our grandchildren? And, um, yeah, no, I mean, there's obviously in discussions like tensions of like, well, we want to have a a world that has a reduced carbon footprint and carbon emission and greenhouse gases. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, well, here's a way you can do that. And then everybody's like, well, there's gotta be a different way. (laughs) It's gotta be a different way. Can we do something different? Solar, Um, maybe some solar. (laughs) Well, you know, that's, you'd have to, and that, you know, of course those, those are the arguments, right? And some of them very justifiably so like. So if we do this, can our electric grid even handle that yeah, extra capacity? That's the like if everybody in the state of Washington within running, X number of yeah. years is heating their homes and their water with electric and then he, you know charging their cars with mm-hmm. electric and like where's the power grid to do that? Yeah. And maybe it's it's also en route, but that absolutely has to be a conversation. This is where it comes back to our conversation that we had just a minute ago. Like we need some really intelligent <laughs> inspired yeah people younger and smarter than Matt and I actually they could be older than Matt and I as well but smarter for sure to come up with some solutions on this i mean we're not that smart i mean i'm not saying we're not smart but no it's it's true they're not they're they're complex and complicated conversations and especially when you have what's going on in Dallas shout out or Dallas but Texas is in general shout out to the people that we know down there from Realty One Group Mm. I mean that's a rough go of like their whole entire grid getting overloaded and that's the challenge that or a challenge not the challenge but a challenge and I remember I hadn't didn't have time to research it but I remember when they were rebuilding Haiti 
after Hurricane Katrina, maybe. It was one of the more recent hurricanes in the last five to ten years. Okay. Um, And I don't know which one it was. But I remember reading that part of the reconstruction was that every house that was being rebuilt had its own solar solar panel system installed. Wow. Which meant that even if the power grid was completely destroyed by a hurricane, that each individual house would have its own fully sustainable electric system. Wow. And... Uh, just this morning, I was inspired about like that thought process of, well, if this is the direction that we need to go or want right. to go, like how do we integrate both? And, and as I'm reading through other parts of the bill, it's a huge push for job creation and economic mm-hmm. creation around mm-hmm. like if we can put money and requirement around this, then we're also going to create opportunity for jobs. And hmm. of course, with every argument, you have two sides to it. And, yeah, and sure. the important thing is to, I think, listen to both sides of the conversation from both sides of the conversation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Come up with some real solutions. It'd be great. So, yeah. Well, interesting. Thank you for that. Yeah, absolutely. You want to talk about some forms. Should I just touch on some numbers real quick before we jump into that? Uh, yeah, let's do it. Okay. Uh, so things have shifted in just the last week, uh, which is a good thing because active listings have gone up. Yay! Is they that the up? first time? I don't know. <laughs> very, I don't know. I mean, it feels like it's thing. just been going down and down and down. Active listings move every single day. Can I One say thing something? that's true, okay. though, is I try mm-hmm. to pull those numbers on the same day every week so that it's as consistent as possible. Right. What do you, what do you have to I, say? Here's what I want to say. I was talking to a lender um, that we work with, uh, Tony Byrne, and um, he, he and I were talking about that we maybe need to change our verbiage because we keep talking about low inventory, low inventory, low inventory. And I think it's scaring a lot of people, especially sellers. Mm. And I said, you know, we talked for a while. So, I wait, said, hold on. Why would it scare sellers? Because they're thinking, well, I need to find a house. Why would I sell my house if I can't go buy a house? Okay. Fair. So that's that's a scary prospect for people to be homeless unless you're moving out of state, right? Sure. So I think a more accurate statement would be because we've talked about this. We've talked about the fact that year over year, 2019 to 2020, we sold almost <clears throat> the same amount of homes. Almost the same amount of homes. So what... How can that be if we have low inventory? It's not low inventory. It's fast inventory. Mm, that's good. That is a really like important understanding. It is fast inventory. Um, and so those people, and we've talked about it before, who are consistent and persistent and you know are there every single week looking at houses, not getting discouraged, being persistent. You know, if you put in one offer and it doesn't go, go again. Um, those are the ones who yeah. are who are getting the houses. And that speaks very much to like median days on market is still six days. Yeah, on our market. And what's interesting to me is that our inventory jumped from I think it was like 183 last week to 297. So that's a pretty significant one week increase in active listings. Um, still a pretty low like mm. 0.36 months of inventory. But part of that is. The the average sold in the last twelve months mm-hmm. was around seven eighty, I think seven eighty one somewhere in there last week. Eight hundred and thirty one is the average if you go twelve months back from today. So what's happening is the average number of sold every month was is also going up, mm. which makes your active inventory feel smaller. Mm-hmm. And so it, that's a, a great nuance of identifying that it's fast inventory. It's yeah. not like houses. There's no houses selling. It's just that they're not sitting around. Yeah. I'm going to say this. We are going to do a class, so watch for it on our Facebook page. It's going to be coming up, I believe, on March 9th, which is a Tuesday. I hope this is right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that our subject is going to be 
not just being a first-time home buyer, but actually being a seller who needs to buy. Sure, and we're gonna good. we're gonna do uh, it'll be an online class. You can register on Facebook. Um, Tony Byrne will be there. Um, Stacy Sampson on our team will be there. Um, and so I think that if any of you are interested in that, watch our Facebook page. You can, it's everreal.com is our, um, well, everreal, E-V-O-R-E-A-L. If you go put that into Facebook, you'll find it. And uh, yeah, that should that should be happening here in the next few weeks. So. Yeah, that's really good. A couple other quick nuances. So not only did our active listing inventory go up, but pending listings went up by about 200 as well. So that tells me that stuff is still moving quickly. But if you're if we look at the closed volume for February mm-hmm. or March, we should see an increase. And of course, year over year, March, April, and May is going to be an increase because COVID was last year like shut stuff down for a couple few months there. So yeah, uh, median the median active list price four hundred and twenty five thousand uh, dollars, but still the median sold is about three twenty six. So. Things are continuing to move up, and that's what yep. happens in a, a tight inventory market like this is people keep pushing the prices up. It's good. We are going to take a quick break, and we will be right back. Welcome back. Jessica, I think we should jump into some real estate stuff. What do you say? I think that would be a good idea. So I um, have prepared some information about a really, really important form that anytime you are going to sell a house, you are going to have to fill out. Um, I do want to just say this too. This, just to yeah. clarify, this it doesn't matter if you use a real estate broker or not. It's yes. state law to complete a seller's disclosure statement. That is correct. So, um, but before I get into the seller's disclosure statement, I'm going to give you some tips and some things that Ooh, you should tips know. Tips and tricks. There's really no tricks involved <laughs> in this. There's only tips. Um, uh, but I just thought I mentioned that actually there's a, you know, if you don't know how it works, we have statewide real estate forms. And those statewide forms um, are used for the whole state of Washington. It used to be that each individual market had their own forms, and they decided to change that. And so in Washington State, we actually, people in Seattle use the same forms as people in Spokane, um, which is kind of... Those are only licensed realtor forms. Like, it's not general public, obviously, just to clarify. Um, And actually, some big, big changes are coming uh, as of, let's see, it will be March 3rd that a bunch of new changes to those forms... So if you're working with a real estate professional right now, just make sure they understand all the new changes because there's a there's lot some, of them. And there's some serious consequences yes. for incorrect completion or deliveries or yeah. different things. So and just a little thought. It's on it's on my mind because I'm about that to teach you class on it. So. Um, okay, so let's talk about it. So in a real estate transaction, your real estate professional should know all of the forms that you need to use, how to fill out those forms to best protect you in this situation. However, there is one form that you have to fill out on your own and it's called the seller's disclosure statement. It's also called the form 17. So if you hear someone say form 17, that is what they're talking about. So I am going to give you a crash course today in the form 17. And, um, so 17 form 17, when I say that seller's disclosure statement, um, it is mandatory, so it doesn't matter if you use a real estate professional, just like Matt said, you're going to have to use it. Why should you care? Why do you need to listen to this? Why should you even uh, get yourself educated on it? I have three reasons. Number one, if it is not properly and totally filled out, it could give a buyer on, on your transaction a get out of 
jail free card or they could just say, hey, you haven't completed this. I want out of the transaction and they can get out of the transaction. You don't want that. So you want to do it properly and you want to do it thoroughly. Uh, number two, if you don't fill it out accurately years after the fact, and if you, so in other words, if you know that there is mold in the attic and you don't say something on the seller's disclosure statement and then the buyer finds mold in the attic, they could come after you to say, no, you knew about it and now you're going to have to pay for something in a house that you thought you were done with. So that is also a really big deal. And then the third reason is it's easy to miss something. So that is why I'm giving a crash course today. So first, uh, let me quickly describe what that form 17 or the seller's disclosure statement looks like. It is six pages long. It is small writing, like the font is relatively small. There are, and I counted this, there are about 100 questions that you have to answer. Um, and those questions are, can be anything from, has there been a leak in the basement or a flood in the basement, or are there any easement agreements on the property? So it, it has a it huge everything. range. everything. It yes. really covers everything. It really does. So essentially for filling out this form, uh, completely, there are four things I'm going to tell you. Number one, check a box on every line. So it's going to ask the question. It's going to ask the question, uh, has the basement flooded? And you need to make sure you answer that question. Okay, so that's number one. Um, there are four columns. It's yes, no, I don't know, or N-A, not applicable. Okay, so if it asks you a question, for instance, about a mobile home, and it's not a mobile home, you don't leave that line blank. You actually say not applicable. Okay. Um, if you have a question and you don't feel confident with a yes or no, that is why I don't know is there. It's quite lovely. So if you don't know the answer to something, that box is perfectly okay to check if you don't know. What if I don't really don't know? Like what if I just don't want to know? Yeah, we'll talk about that in a minute. Right. <laughs> so I don't number know one, anything. I'm just going to fill out. I don't know on everything. Yeah, we'll talk about how dangerous that is. Uh, so number one is to check a box on every single line. You have four choices. You'll be able to pick one of them. Uh, number two, if there's an asterisk in front of the question, there has to be either an explanation and or uh, supporting documentation. So for instance, if it says, is there an easement? And you say, yes, that's an asterisk item. It means you're supposed to give more information. <laughs> Explain to me about the easement. I don't want to just know that there's an easement. I want to understand what it is or have documentation. Like a, they'll ask the question about a survey and make sure that you are checking to, uh, or adding the survey that you have to the documentation. Um, so that is really important. And sometimes it's the asterisk is up here and then it has like questions that are indented underneath. That means that anything under there would also need to be explained. All right. So that's number two, number one boxes, make sure that every line number three and number two, wait, did I say one? What did I, one, <laughs> two, three, I'm having a hard time. Counting's difficult. <laughs> Where's Janet Jackson when you need her? Anyway, um, that's a, Rhythm Nation. 
two, three. Okay. You had to grow up in the 80s um, or 90s for that Yeah, one. I think so. Uh, anyway, some people that listen to this did, so they will understand what I'm talking about. Uh, okay, number three, don't be afraid to add extra sheets of paper if you need it. Okay, if the explanation that you have is longer than the small space they provide for you on page five, then add more pieces of paper. That's completely fine. And I personally recommend it. Um, and number four, my blanket advice, and this is where Matt was going, disclose, disclose, disclose. It is, number one, is the right thing to do. Number two, it leaves your conscience, conscience clear. Number three, it relieves you from liability in the future. If you tell everything that you know about the house, the good, the bad, and the ugly, then no one can come back to you and say, hey, you didn't tell me that. You say, yes, I did. So there's a motivation even if I don't have a conscience or I care if it's don't care if it's the right thing. That is correct. Right. Like if you don't want to have a lawsuit on your hands in potentially five years down the road or right. longer, right. then you want to make sure you're disclosing. Um, and it also gives the buyer confidence in you. Um, Sure. That's I have, a good that's a good point. I have been in situations where we've gotten the form 17. The buyer has looked through everything and then we have in our own inspection discovered something and realized the seller knew about this and they didn't tell us. Now, it doesn't matter that they go, "Oh, hey, I'm sorry about that" or "Oh, yeah, I forgot to tell you" or "I'll change the form 17 to reflect the information that you have." Yeah. My buyer doesn't trust them anymore. They don't trust them and they will go, "You know what? What if they're lying about something else? Even if it wasn't lying, it potentially could have dire consequences to the actual transaction that is going on." So, super super important. Um as a broker, I can tell you how to answer questions like, does, I can say, yeah, does the dishwasher work? That this is what it means, but I can't even explain it to you. Like it is your job to answer these questions and um, anything that it's, here's what my job is. Here's what I do. I make sure you complete it. Like I make sure every box is filled out and I make sure that um, every asterisk is explained, but I don't know if something has happened. So that's why it's really important that you as the seller understand the form, be as brutally honest as you can possibly be, add extra pages if you want, because it will protect you in the future. So that is my Form 17. Form 17, it's an important document. It is, and, and it's I in every transaction. And I have absolute experience as a knowledgeable real estate broker representing a buyer, having the conversation with my buyer, mm -hmm. now I want to draw your attention to the fact that several of these boxes are not checked. Yeah. You have an option here, buyer. Yep. We can go back and say we want that information or we don't have to. And if for some reason down the path of closing, you want to get out of this, you technically have not received a completed form 17 and we can give our notice. Yeah. And so I have had buyers say, well, I don't really care too much about what they didn't tell me. So we'll just hold that ace up our sleeve. And the reality is, there's not a doggone thing that that seller can do about it because they did not give me a completed form 17. Yeah, that's Period. part of the requirement. So it completed, yeah, the get out of jail. I mean, it's a good monopoly. Like you do not want to give that to a buyer. You want to lock them in 
and only give them the contingencies that you agreed to, not a mistake. Now, now when they get the Form 17, when mm -hmm. the buyer gets the Form 17, how much time do they, like, what does that do for them? Like, they see something that they don't want, but it is complete. Can they get out of the transaction at that they point? They have three days at that point. I always get my three and five day, but I believe it's three days. So when once a buyer gets it, if they see something they don't like, they have three days not counting business days or not counting weekends and holidays. Okay. So three business days. Uh, to be able to get out of the transaction at that and point. And this is assuming that the, the, the listeners are using the Washington State uh, real estate professional forms for Correct. the state of Washington. Correct. So if you have an, an attorney that's drafting something up for you, that could be completely different. It will have a seller's disclosure statement, though. But it could have different terms of the seller's disclosure, is what I'm saying. So I don't know the answer to that question. Well, I'm pretty sure I do. <laughs> there, oh. is a, there is a section at the back where the buyer is signing and checking that they reserve the right to review the disclosure. So That's right. Uh, that's where the three days come in. Well, I am excited because it is still winter time. Yes, it is. And um, I thought, you know what? What's happening in Spokane? Snow is happening in Spokane. Mm -hmm. And if snow is happening in Spokane, then maybe we should do a little bit of a ski report. Even if rain is happening in Spokane, snow is happening on ski hills. Sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> Depending on the ski hill, probably. Sometimes. So let's just talk about some of our area mountains. We've got some cross-country. I got some cross-country intel for you, and I got mm -hmm. a little downhill intel for you. All right. So the closest Nordic skiing uh, trail system to mm -hmm. Spokane is Mount Spokane's trail system. Uh, if you're interested in the details, you can go to spokanenordic.org, mm -hmm. and it has trail maps and grooming reports and all that kind of stuff. Um, I have to just read this to you. So this is as today's grooming report. Okay. Good morning, Mount Spokane cross-country skiers. This is your Thursday morning grooming report from your friendly ginger-bearded maintenance man. <laughs> Filling in for Hudson this morning, or sorry, this evening. The snow was absolutely brilliant this evening, and I was able to get an awesome groom in on most of the trails. Outer limits was pure bliss. Mm -hmm. And so if you're feeling saucy, I recommend heading that way. The only issues out there are the junctions, uh, there was a lot of snow in the junction and on the machine, so as I made mm -hmm. my pass, I shed quite a bit of snow, making for some uneven terrain through there. Other than that, I promise you'll have an amazing day if you can make it out the ginge. <laughs> I, just, I just thought that that sums up the Nordic ski culture to mm -hmm. a T. Fantastic. Go it is, hit I am not the like trails. A, I'm not a great cross-country skier. I actually hurt myself, I think, worse... <clears throat> cross-country skiing than I have downhill snowboarding. Um, just anyway, I'm not even going to explain it. But it is one of the most beautiful places. It's quiet and the snow especially, on the trees. Especially this weekend because of the fact that we have a fresh blanket oh, of snow. And that is, it's, it's like going for a walk in the woods yeah. in the wintertime. But the snow creates like a, we've talked about it before, yeah, like an yeah. anti-sound. I know it's not just quiet; it's like opposite it's amazing. of sound. I love it. Fourth uh, of July and Lookout Pass both have uh, Nordic ski areas as well. Not as much detail on like grooming reports and stuff that okay. I was able to find, but as I go through some of the downhill, you'll be able to kind of get an idea of what's happening on the in that those areas. Gotcha. Silver Mountain would be similar to Fourth uh, of July, and obviously Lookout has both Nordic and um, downhill. So, and, and Schweitzer, by the way, does have its own Nordic track or trail system as well. All right, let's talk about some downhill stuff. Let's talk about Mount Spokane. 
snow depths. We've got 65 inches at the at the base down by the uh, lodge, uh, and then 95 inches up on the top. That's actually a really good snowpack. Um, there is snow in the forecast. If you're listening to this on Saturday, snow probably dumped uh, into Friday. Uh, so hopefully, you, or if you're a, a big time skier, you were able to get up there on Friday morning and catch some of the pow, as they say. Mm. Uh, let's see, what do we got next? Um, lookout pass. I gotta just go. So we've only got 58 inches at the at the base, uh, 85 inches at the top. But I have to just pull out for you total snow accumulation, uh, and I'll compare it to some of our other Idaho mountains as well. 313 inches of snow total total for the season. Wow. That is a ton of snow. Hmm. And uh, what I think it, it pulls out, as you'll see on a couple of these others, is just the, it's a small hill. Like the vertical is not nearly as big as some of the others, but it's snow quality oh, and wow. accumulation over the season is unbeatable. Silver Mountain, not too far down the road, closer to Spokane, 75 at the base, 82 at the top. Mm-hmm. They've only had 192 inches of total accumulation. Mm-hmm. So just to put that into perspective, like gotcha. almost half. Uh, and then Schweitzer, uh, 60 at the base, 88 at the top. I mean, that's kind of what we're seeing in the, the mountains for the, the snow. Again, if you missed Friday's powder, it's still probably pretty epic uh, on Saturdays. Saturday. We think uh, Sunday, Sunday will be as No, good. It'll be, I think it'll be fine. I think the temperatures are going to be good. I think the, the groomers will be out. There'll probably be some untouched powder in the trees a little bit. Isn't it amazing that we live in an area where we can drive to all of these places? In about an hour to an hour and a half. I mean, Mount Spokane's an hour... Schweitzer's Schweitzer's probably close to two hours by the time you get get up and park and and that kind of stuff. But look, I mean, Lookout is all freeway. It's I-90 start Mm -hmm. to finish, 90 minutes away. I mean, the parking lot for Lookout is is I-90. If you like power. Exit zero. That place is amazing for power. You just don't have quite the vertical. I mean, that's the thing. Like, you get to the top and you're down to the bottom. So (laughs) if you're a hardcore skier. Maybe not the best place for... It's a great place for kids. Yes. All right. That's all we got for you this week. Uh, We'll talk to you next week. Have a great weekend. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Bye.